Hello, my name is Daniel Lev Shkolnik, and this is Reenchantment, a podcast about finding wonder in a secular age. As a humanist, my faith lies in humanity, not in the supernatural. And if you believe that spirituality is fundamentally about cultivating the human spirit, then this podcast is for you. On today's episode, my guest is Mike Myers, a writer, skeptic, and an occultist. We'll talk about occultism and how skeptics might find value in the very heart of the supernatural. Stick around till the end of the show when I ask Mike to invent a word or concept that helps skeptics talk about sacred and spiritual things without using words like sacred and spiritual. Mike's word comes from professional wrestling, and it's quickly becoming one of my favorite words to bring into conversations about philosophy and religion. And now, my conversation with Mike Myers. Mike Myers is joining me today on the podcast. Welcome, Mike. Thank you very much. Mike, you are somebody that was around in the early days, would you say, of online uh, atheism? Yeah, uh, I was a lurker for a while on YouTube, and then I became, then I got a channel which grew to a pretty moderate size, and uh, I was definitely a participant in the conversation and have met even a few of the, the bigger names. So, Around what years uh, were those? Oh, God. I mean, I guess it probably started off 2000. 6, 2007, whenever YouTube sort of started to come out immediately, there were fights about God. <laughs> <laughs> so since then, uh, you've uh, taken an interest in, well, occultism. Yeah, actually, I was interested in the occult first, and then kind of became became an atheist, and now I've kind of retaken an interest in it. So tell me about you know that process. You've told me before that you were raised in a religious household. Yeah, uh, very so, Catholic. So give me the I guess the the history, the background of belief. Well, I again I was raised very Catholic, and probably around twelve or thirteen began to sort of question it and went through a kind of rebellious phase, and in that time period until probably the beginning of college, really spent a lot of time studying the occult, and I guess at the time I didn't realize, but what we would now think of as like new agey stuff as well, so I don't know why, I, just, I was just always attracted to, to expressions of religion that were esoteric and sort of not stuff that my parents would hate. <laughs> Yeah. Was was some heavy metal involved in that as well? Of course. Okay, great. Of course. Good, I'm just making sure. Mm-hmm. When you were moving uh, away from uh, kind of mainstream Catholicism, were you still a believer in the supernatural at the time? Yeah. I don't think I sort of disavowed the supernatural until college. I mean, it depends on what you mean by supernatural. There are robust questions there to be addressed. But I found myself cleaving more and more towards what might be thought of as naturalism. Certainly by the end of college, I was I was pretty much a full-blown atheist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of entered into the uh, the fray, so to speak, of uh, YouTube atheism. At, at what point did you start moving away from that? I almost immediately. Something about the tone of the discussion or? No, it, well, I mean, that was part of it, but I try really hard whenever I find myself really like ensconced in a belief or like 
or repeating talking points from other people, I like immediately try to reassess myself and try and I know that at that point I've accepted an ideology and it was time to sort of just throw a wrench in the works and 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 that's that's sort of what I did so I tried to be a kind of a bit of a gadfly and the in that conversation and I tried to look at the trends that were going on within within atheism on YouTube and tried to critique them as much as I did like religious people and such. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of really great conversations with with Christians actually because there is a there was at the time a sort of a lack of self-awareness that there was a lockstep sort of attitude with respect to atheism. People generally held the same the same basic belief structure but they would deny it. Right. Within atheism. Within atheism, yeah. And I don't mean to suggest that YouTube is like everything about atheism, but I, but when I was sort of involved in the conversation, a lot of the atheists were just all repeating each other. And there was a kind of an echo chamber effect happening. And I mean, that's why it ended up ultimately, I think, dying off or like, the moment you introduce some foreign element into it, it just collapses. Now, I don't want to go too deep on this on this episode. I think that that's a whole whole different episode we can come back to and really sure. dig into the uh, the history of that time period. Mm-hmm. But I guess tell me a little bit about. I guess today, w- would you categorize yourself as uh, something in particular? I'm always a little prickly around labels, and that sounds pretentious, but it's just kind of part of my makeup where I try to immediately start deconstructing something that I that I accept sure in general would you say you're skeptical about supernatural beliefs but yes I'd say I, I'm certainly skeptical about supernatural beliefs and I'm certainly skeptical about supernatural claims a lot of my critique of atheism now is that I think that there's I think it's very bold to say I do or don't believe X mm-hmm. at some deep level because I don't necessarily think that our beliefs are transparent to us. Mm-hmm. I think that's a that's a very superficial concept of belief. Mm-hmm. So as a result of that claim, I think that it's difficult to for me to to say I am an atheist because mm-hmm. it's it's difficult for me to to think that there aren't parts of myself that may still believe mm-hmm. like there is a I'm sure there's a small child in me that is still like very much hoping that my grandmother's in heaven and what I mean <laughs> uh, yeah yeah there's um a concept called uh, a leaves yes a leaves and b leaves yeah 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 mm-hmm. we're, we're a leaves uh, you, you you believe them but not explicitly you you kind of someone says is if it's something you don't consciously uh, know that you you believe in sure I mean Richard Dawkins once said that he that he would hate to spend a night in a haunted house or a house that had been sure but I mean and it, I think that we all sort of have that about us I don't I don't think that humans are I think it would be very difficult for a person to be through and through a naturalist all the way down I I don't want to dismiss the possibility or anything but I think that it it would just be a difficult way to live, I think. Yeah. 
Yeah, kind of uh, clearing out completely all that sort of magical common sense that, uh, that it's been. Yeah, you know. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, why is it that we go to the graves of loved ones, for example? Yeah, uh, there's something symbolic there, but it's we we talk to stones and to, to to earth, and and part of us half or wholly believes that in some way we're communicating with a, a piece of them that is still there. Yeah, and I mean. I think that's just a part of being human. I think that so it, it this is this is why I, I hesitate to identify myself as an atheist. I remember Jacques Derrida said in one of his essays that I might rightly be called an atheist. I think that's as comfortable as I am about 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 the label atheism. I think I might rightly be called an atheist. And I mean that's true about any other belief system that I might interact with. So, talking about haunted houses and graves, let's launch into the uh, the occult. In your words, how would you define the occult for those that may not be familiar with it? Usually when I reference the occult, I'm talking about a specific collection of beliefs that developed in the 19th century under like the Golden Dawn and under the Theosophists and then later flowered in people like Aleister Crowley. So there's about like 200 years of time there where you find this kind of romantic response to the death of God problem. Mm-hmm. It's, it very much belongs to the romantic moment in history, I think, and it's uh, kind of, I think it's a product of the Enlightenment, but it's kind of a counter-Enlightenment at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's just a lot of interesting thoughts and ideas, and they've definitely shaped my thinking in various ways. So, Yeah, so in relation to... Uh thinking of the occult uh, as another reaction to the death of God problem, what, in what ways would a kind of modern skeptic, atheist, naturalist find value in occult uh, ideas and theories? This is where I think questions about supernaturalism become almost superficial. Because if you look at mystics throughout history they are after something supernatural there's no question about it but very much they're also participating in a in a project of self-crafting i think there's an element of trying to shape the psyche and shape the mind in a way that comports with with some concept of who you want to be. So in in some way there's a there's an ethical dimension. What would you say about let's say tarot cards as a certain type of esoteric practice? Uh, how might a non-believer you know, make use of a tarot deck? I think the average atheist would see a tarot card reader and think of them as either crazy or a scam artist. Whereas I think that taking a deep dive into into the tarot, which I've been doing, you realize that actually there is a really robust way of thinking and approaching reality built in here that is not reducible to a parlor trick. Mm. I think if, it, if you're an atheist and you're a naturalist and if you don't have room in your belief structure for divination or something like divination, then it opens up a question of 
Is that the only function of a tarot deck? And I don't think that the answer to that question is yes. I think that what the tarot is is in some way a language for describing elements of human experience. And it's a very deep language. It's not, it's not stupid. Each card is going to mean something different. If you take the Nine of Swords, for instance, the Nine of Swords is also known as the Lord of Cruelty. So when you look at that card, then you're immediately confronted with a question of, of where is there cruelty in my life? Mm -hmm. It's like a, a, a prompt almost, a uh, kind of a yeah. question of where does this puzzle piece, where does this shard fit mm -hmm. into your current life or into the world around you? Yeah, and there's a, there's a question then about, in, in some way that this is why it's good that it's random and you're, you're shuffling the deck and you're, and you're generating these archetypes at random because cruelty might not be a subject that you think about on your own spontaneously. You might not realize that there are ways in which you're being cruel or, the, or saying things that are cruel or doing things that are cruel, or other people around you might be, or whatever. But if you're given the prompt, hey, think about cruelty in your life, I think you can uncover potentially important things. And that's true about all of the cards. They mean different things, they, they do different things, and there are sort of infinite ways to interpret them but the whole point is that you're engaged in some kind of hermeneutic activity mm. and the cards are are there to call you out at some point i think you mentioned this uh before in a different conversation that we had but it's kind of like a rorschach text yes it's a rorschach test and um, you kind of you look at these different shapes and you kind of see well what do you see there hmm. and and it, it kind of gives you a, a better understanding of your own mind in a sense i think that's true and and of your own life as well and i think if you do a standard tarot reading there are 10 cards that come out and one of them is the future to think of that as a divinatory tool mm. or a way of reading the future seems to me to be very close-minded in a certain way because most of what we're discussing there is not the future and you can even read that future card you can read those cards as as what you'd like the future to be, or one of many possibilities of the future, or the or a warning, or or something like that, all of which I think are exempt from the charge of supernaturalism. Mm -hmm. Especially if we're talking in the way again, if you get a future card as cruelty, then there's a question of well, how do I how do I steer whatever situation I'm in in a way that doesn't lead to cruelty. This is uh, making me think of kind of a kind of practice of contemplation. You're prompted by these cards. You're, mm -hmm. yeah, they come up and you have to kind of reckon with how each of them fit into our lives. Because mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned earlier that each card represents a different archetype. All of these things you can find in any human life. Yeah. You know. And if not literally, then metaphorically. And the thing is like 
on the one hand, there would be a question that I think many atheists would pose, which would be like, well, what utility does that have? And it, it might not have much utility. I'm, I'm not sure, but I just happen to like tarot cards. You know what I mean? Sure, like, sure. I, I don't think you can discount the aesthetic component of, of the occult. Yeah. The whole aesthetic that comes with that, I think, for some people, is very attractive. Yeah, and I think that that's a question that atheists in general have not been very good about answering. Someone's religion, in many respects, creates an avenue for not just aesthetics, but aesthetics of the self as well. And when I say that atheists haven't been very good about it, that's half true, because I think of someone like Nietzsche, who was all about that. Like, <laughs> like that was his project in some way. Or Foucault. You know, these are people who are very concerned with the question of the aesthetics of the self. But the nice thing about religion in this respect is that you have a series of coded gestures and, and images and uh, a symbolic language through which you can communicate things and you can manipulate that symbolic language for aesthetic purposes. And not just aesthetic, but also even, again, ethical purposes. An example? By ethical in this context, I mean, I'm referring to something like virtue. And I think something like the cross as a symbol is an incredibly interesting symbol. And that's that was the first hook in my mouth when it came to atheism at a certain point is a question like, well, if it's all bullshit, there clearly is something about it that's really attractive and really mm -hmm. human, and what is that thing, mm -hmm. right? And I was thinking specifically about the cross. That image has reverberated in history in so many ways that that I think any any honest atheist has to pose themselves a question like, why? And and I think that when I when I say that there's an almost an ethical dimension to that aesthetics, I think that that the cross as a, an aesthetic image is also used as an object of devotion, an object of contemplation, an object of cultivating the self in some way. Mm -hmm. What does it mean? to bear your cross? What does it mean to take up the cross, quote-unquote? And how should we relate to that? And I think that that question is like especially important for atheists. Mm -hmm. There's also, I don't know, a certain enchantment that, that comes with uh, certain symbols, sure. a, a mystery. Symbols, as I think as Jung understood them, they, they're not mere signs. They're not just uh, kind of single-use things, but they're, they have an infinite depth to them. That yeah. You can't quite get to the full bottom of a symbol. I mean, a tarot deck, again, um, I use Aleister Crowley's Toth deck usually, which I think is gorgeous. I think it's just a beautiful deck. I think there are a lot of really gifted artists and a lot of really interesting minds who construct tarot decks, and there are a lot of them out there now. It was an initiatory practice for the Golden Dawn to make your own tarot deck. Now, there are constraints on what your tarot deck could be in within that context within the context of the golden dawn you're like each card the nine of swords you know maybe you can change swords to potatoes and like whatever <laughs> but like uh it it's gonna ultimately mean 
something like cruelty, if not mm-hmm. quite cruelty. And there, there are reasons why, that's right? The, that's the Irish deck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there, there, there's an underlying logic to the tarot which, which determines how these symbols signify and what they mean. And that one of the most interesting things is seeing how those things have been interpreted, how the Nine of Swords, for instance, has been interpreted myriad ways in the past 200 years, and even before that in the Marseille decks and stuff, where they're all communicating basically the same thing. But if you look at how many ways you can draw that, there's something really breathtaking about it. That's one aesthetic domain. Another aesthetic domain, and this is where I think you find overlap between the occult and mysticism, if you read the the Christian mystics, for instance, their writing is absolutely stunning, almost always. St. Teresa of Oliva, for instance, she has a book called, I think it's The Interior Palace, which is one of the most beautiful books I've ever read in my entire life. And... If you read The Cloud of Unknowing or, or A Mirror of Simple Souls by Marguerite Porret, there are just these beautiful passages. Marguerite Porret says, for instance, we have to annihilate the self, hacking and hewing away to make a space large enough that love may enter. And she describes this process of like self-mortification, which is, on the one hand, I can understand why somebody might be like, wow, that's horrible. But on the other hand, just at a purely aesthetic level, there's there, there's the the writing is so beautiful, right? And there's, and there's also something powerful about it too. Yes. I mean, the mm-hmm. for example, in Saint, Saint Teresa's writings, like it, it's it's very much writing that is meant to evoke a mystical experience yeah. in the reader as well. Very so much you can feel the power that she felt in those mm-hmm. those experiences. There is no doubt to me that there is such a thing as religious experience. And those moments of religious experience, which I'm gonna put in quotation marks and leave the definition suspended for a moment, those moments are, are even for an atheist, I think the moments that make life worth living or the moments that, that make you feel situated in the world in some in some special way. Mm-hmm. Some people take acid or some people like sit in a cave for years or whatever. There are a lot of ways of getting at that category of religious experience. And there is no doubt to me at all that St. Teresa was somebody who was just drenched in it, like like just soaking in religious experience. Yeah, so William James, in his book um, Varieties of Religious Experience, he talks mm-hmm. about uh, mysticism as the kind of kernel around which religions uh, uh, are built. You know, I, I'm a big big fan of uh, of James, and I think he mm-hmm. he hits it right on the head mm-hmm. when he's talking about these these sorts of experiences. What was immensely fascinating to me is when he opens his chapter about mysticism in that book, not talking about Christian mysticism or anything like that. He talks about secular uh, yeah. mystical experience. Sure, he talks about at the time there were you know 
uh, ether was was the big drug, sure. kind of these anesthetics. And he talked about people that had kind of gone under and had these crazy visions, crazy experiences, and and also talked about poets. Talked about Alfred Lloyd Tennyson and how he would walk through a field and just saying his own name to himself again and again until. Mm-hmm the time kind of uh, fell away and he 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 felt he uh, was in union with the universe around him yeah and it's and it's as you said these these are some of the experiences that uh, that for people religious and not are some of the most important experiences of their lives Mm -hmm. yeah and i think in some sense depending on what you want to get out of the occult to my mind there's always a question about religion where it's like what does a person want to get out of it and it I think that that question determines a lot how hostile I am towards them. <laughs> because some people are, are really just are looking for a cudgel, mm. or they're looking for a way to inflate their egos, and they're looking for a way to, to be able to talk shit about other people, or, mm. or to be able to shame other people, or to feel superior in some way, or to all of these things. And, and if that's what you're looking for, religion will allow you to do that. On the other hand, I mean, if, if you're seeking something like religious or mystical experience out of religion, I don't, first of all, I don't see what's incompatible about secularism at that point. And second of all, it, it I think that's noble. And you can look at, one way to think about the occult might be that it's kind of the MacGyver system of achieving religious experience in that you're taking elements that are from everywhere you're you're being resourceful in your belief system and you're you're allowing beliefs to be tools that we can make use of to then achieve potentially ecstatic states or potentially transformative states or something like that where the the occultist may not have found transcendence if you like in in traditional religions but at the same time doesn't want to throw it out i think that many occultists would agree with a thesis like beliefs are a tool or an instrument to get at certain forms of experience mm-hmm. i think many occultists would argue with each other about how how those experiences and those beliefs sh- shape the world or if they shape the world? At the very least, um, would you say that they, they kind of shape the personal psychology or the personal world? That's the, that's the hope. I wonder how far you can get in that project. I think it's an interesting question. Because again, I don't think that we're transparent to ourselves. Mm-hmm. I don't think that we ha- necessarily have access to what we don't do and don't believe. I don't think that we have a perfect science of how to shape our own psychology. Mm. Obviously, if we did, we wouldn't have mental illness. We wouldn't have psychologists. Yeah, we wouldn't have psychologists. So I think that, you know, and I don't think that religion, not religion, I don't think that the occult is like a substitute for seeing a therapist or something. (laughs) But I think that it is true that participating in the occult can afford or yield a sense of agency in the world where it's very difficult to find a sense of agency in many mm-hmm. respects. As you were saying before, kind of a response to the death of God uh, and like what what meaning, purpose, agency do we have in the universe if yeah. if we aren't part of that, that superstructure of meaning. Sure, and also not just in the universe. Well, 
I mean, in the universe, we're very, very small, sure, but in our workplaces, we can be very small. And in our interpersonal relationships, we can feel very small. And we can, there are so many ways in which we can feel small that aren't this Carl Sagan transcendent form of smallness. Sure. And there are a lot of ways in which we, we just don't feel like we have a sense of agency or self-determination because we're constantly following orders or we're constantly doing this or that. And I think that like the, one of the primary things that the occult allows you to do is to believe, if only just for a moment, that you're somehow making an impact on the world and you're doing it. It's your, it's through your intention and it's through your will that you're, that you're making some kind of change in the world. And now how seriously you take that clause, making some kind of change in the world, is going to determine how compatible it is with secularism. Mm -hmm. But I think there's something so there's something so needed about it, about about the capacity to feel agency in a world in which we can feel so powerless. You know, it's something I was thinking about um, earlier today. Uh, you know, this kind of notion of uh, how occultism, you know, in these various uh, systems of practice and uh, form a part of a, a sort of fictionalism, oh, yeah. where where you know, a kind of a suspension of disbelief, uh, even for a moment, as you say, it's not that you necessarily accept that you suddenly have this immense power in the universe. I, I think of it as having yourself open to a sort of mystical moment mm -hmm. in which you temporarily reject that it is false yeah and uh mm -hmm. and you live in this kind of liminal state of ambiguity yeah. open to the the mystery of everything that we don't know about the universe yeah and also open to ways of being and stances towards the world that are empowering if you read about like chaos magic which is a version of the occult that, that came up in the 70s i mean they it's all about being able to pick up and put down beliefs at will. So it's all about this idea that truth for the chaos, for the serious chaos magician, is is utility to a radical extent to the point where you would you would say, "Well, I believe this now, just for the outcome that it might yield." So whatever's true is whatever is most useful in the yeah. moment, and that's the. I mean, that's the pragmatic, or that's a pragmatic conception of truth, but but they take it much, much further, like <laughs> to a really kind of radical degree where you, if you're feeling small, maybe it'll be, maybe it would be helpful to believe you have magic powers for a few hours. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Sure. And if you can't fully commit to that metaphysical perspective, you could yeah. at least play act for, yeah. for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and you can suspend judgment. Mm -hmm. Judgment is a faculty that we that we can suspend, and I think that you can participate in something with your judgment suspended in a way that can be healing. Yeah. Even. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and I, and I guess it's almost like a, a parallel to, I guess, fantasy. Yeah. Uh, fantasy novels, fantasy imagination, this sort of escape into this other world, giving yourself a place in which you suddenly have 
have meaning, import, power that mm-hmm. otherwise you may not have in your day-to-day life. And as you said, uh, the healing that can come with that is powerful. Sure. I think of, so fantasy, uh, I'm a fan of, I like fantasy. It's different because I don't know how other people experience books, but like you're reading about someone else's exploits, right. what I mean, sure. as opposed to be, being in the first person. Mm-hmm. In some way, it's closer to D&D, but you're taking seriously the idea you know within something like ceremonial magic or or within these ritual practices you you're taking seriously the idea that you can shape the world Mm -hmm. and you're taking that seriously and not only that but if you're in a ritual scenario everyone around you is taking it seriously too but i mean so there's there's a sense in which all of a sudden um you're very large your will counts for something or at least you feel that way so i think also kind of coming back to how that may function as a healing mechanism and this is uh, a hypothetical or a hypothesis but i i imagine much of spiritual technology so to speak spiritual mm-hmm. practice as a way in which we are able to access our subconscious yeah. or our unconscious mind Sure. There's a small almond-shaped structure in the brain called the amygdala that is the like center for anxiety, the fight-or-flight mechanism, stuff like that. And I'm sure your listeners will beat me up if I get this too wrong. But I, <laughs> I won't tell uh, them where you live. <laughs> sure. The, but it's my understanding, at least, that the amygdala is not really... doesn't really understand words you can't negotiate your own way out of anxiety necessarily and the other thing too it doesn't necessarily understand the difference between fiction and reality it's a very Mm. primitive structure Mm. this is why you can like experience anxiety about things that haven't happened Mm. and or even things that haven't happened yet this is why nightmares are genuinely frightening or or why past events can haunt you ptsd yeah i mean the amygdala is right at the center of ptsd so if we pose a question like how do you okay if we can't like communicate with our own amygdala well is there a way that we can penetrate our own minds to the extent where we can change that in some way the only way we're going to be able to get at the unconscious is going to be through something powerful and through something that's not reducible to symbols may use symbols but it's not reducible to symbols Mm -hmm. so when christians for instance talk about grace and the moment of grace you know i've had experiences that feel that way you know Mm -hmm. i know that feeling it's Mm -hmm. it's a rare feeling but i know it and that's something that's going to be a lot closer to being able to shape who we are i really do believe that like St. Augustine or St. Paul or pick who you want, when they had their conversion experiences, they were a whole new man. Mm-hmm. What I mean? They're com- completely different. So it has that potential for, for deep transformation. Yeah. I think the atheist movement, the and even the, the humanist movement, the non-believers of, of all stripes, I don't think we have a really robust secular version of that. No, I don't think so. And I think that, I mean, Sam Harris is trying. I think that his version of that project is is really weak. 
mm-hmm. though. It, um, it, it's a type of Buddhism. I mean, yeah. it's and and there's there's no there's good reason why I think Buddhism has you know kind of become so popular among uh, even among the secular world. At the same time, it's sort of a I don't know a safe. Yeah, uh, way of approaching uh, these kinds of deeper waters. Yeah, and I mean, on my better days, I I practice Zen meditation, and I think that so like Buddhism is something that I know a, a good amount about, and it's something that Aleister Crowley knew a lot about as well. I do think that there's a, a risk of Orientalism built into into it you know what i mean like like the sacred other which ha- is a kind of racism you know what i mean sure not just that but because we're stepping out of the western traditions that light like i that's what licenses it as being okay mm-hmm. in some sense it, like i'm worried about that sure what which <clears throat> actually i was thinking about this earlier today uh, a kind of parallel philosophy that is becoming coming up in popularity right now is stoicism sure. which in in many ways has a lot of parallels with buddhism mm-hmm. but is very much from the the traditional western tradition yeah and i think i mean stoicism is i couldn't imagine myself seriously becoming a stoic you know it might just be my temperament or something like that but i've always been more of a romantic than that i think mm-hmm. in some sense the the conflict is purely aesthetic right mm-hmm. sure um, sure but at this level i think that that's important and yeah kind of what we were talking about earlier about the importance of aesthetics there's something about kind of dressing and walking and surrounding yourself with the colors that suit you best. Yeah. Atheists who are Marxists, for instance, are going to be very different than a Richard Dawkins atheist. Very different from um, a humanist atheist, maybe, Mm -hmm. or, you know, there are also free thinkers, Stoics, secular Buddhists. Mm -hmm. So there there is, in in some sense, already some, a a good deal of diversity in in the sphere of non-belief. Yeah. But yeah, there, I think... But it is a sphere. Mm-hmm. Right there's a there is a, a discourse and conversation and it and I think it's kind of fallen apart but it it certainly for about ten years after nine eleven there was a very pronounced very clear domain where this kind of conversation was being had and it, nowadays it looks kind of quaint I think. But I, I just don't think that it ever got itself together to the point where, like, it had something to offer mm-hmm. because of these aesthetic problems. Sure, sure. And that's, you know, definitely one of the things I'm interested in with, with this podcast. What can be offered? What can be offered to people that don't resonate with the metaphysics of traditional religions or with popular folk beliefs and supernaturalism? How do we give ourselves a sense of empowerment in a world that we feel pretty certainly doesn't have any hint that we are particularly special at all. Yeah, and some people get that by looking up at the stars, making nature sacred in some sense. This is the kind of Carl Sagan move, where nature itself takes on a kind of aesthetic that can leave a person breathless and in awe. Now, the question becomes, is that the only domain in life where that's appropriate? Or how do we extend that into other spheres, into other places? And are there other sort of modalities of that kind of 
awe. I don't even know if anybody's ever been able to come up with the words to describe like the kind of feeling that you get if you're like standing in a field looking up at all the stars in the universe and and you you get overcome and overwhelmed. It would be hasty and and probably just inaccurate to say that the occult is any given thing but you can certainly make use of it in that way and that's how I would approach making use of it it gives you like fodder for participating in you know I want to use a word like the divine but I think that might be that might not be quite right for this podcast but it gives you fodder for for getting at something like religious experience without necessarily being attached to a religion because tarot has never been attached to a particular religion you know what i mean twice uh during our talk you mentioned uh, a lack of words for certain kinds of experiences i ask people to uh to come up with one word that doesn't currently exist that does a service to explain a secular concept, either a religious concept in secular terms or a completely new word like going out under the stars. And I wonder if you want to contribute something to uh, this uh, little atheist dictionary of, of missing wonders. Oh, I mean, that's easy. And the word that I would use is kayfabe. Kayfabe, okay. Right? What is kayfabe? Kayfabe comes from professional wrestling. Because <laughs> so in professional wrestling, there are there. Are, we all know that professional wrestling is predetermined, if you like, fake, right, or something like that. But and this so, is like WWE, WWE stuff. Yeah, there's two levels of reality happening. Therefore, at any given moment, mm -hmm. there's the level of of these are real human beings who are who are cooperating with each other in order to put on a show, and then there's the fiction which is where they're competing against each other. And that fictional layer is kayfabe. So they would... And how do you, how do you spell that? K-A-Y-F-A-B-E. So they would, to use it in a sentence, it would be like, within kayfabe, I don't know, Bret Hart was an amazing technical wrestler. Or within kayfabe, The Undertaker was undead and had superpowers or something. You know what I mean? Uh, whereas in reality, obviously, he didn't. And so, you know, in a secular context, within kayfabe, you know, during that ritual last night, I felt like I had come to grips with my, you know, fear of death. Yeah, ex exactly how I mean to use the term is mm -hmm. that is that people who watch wrestling and people who love wrestling know that it's predetermined and mm -hmm. know that it's an act of like cooperation instead of competition and they know these things mm -hmm. and yet they can suspend their disbelief in order to enjoy the narrative and we all do this when we go to the movies or when we do 10,000 different things we, mm -hmm. we willingly suspend our disbelief and buy into something for a certain experience to, to take place and I think that there's a way of approaching spirituality, which is a word I kind of hate, but, or there's a way of approaching religion, or there's a way of approaching where, where we, can, we can talk about the supernatural as kayfabe. Mm -hmm. sure, sure. Right? Without it being reality. I love it. I love it. I think that's a, that's an incredibly useful concept, and it, it is essentially at the heart of what we were, what we've been talking about this whole episode: the occult as as kayfabe. Yeah, and but that that can be instrumentalized in some way. That can be mm -hmm. that 
So it's that weird state of like, you're believing something that you don't believe temporarily. If I had to describe my relationship to the occult, it would be probably the occult as kayfabe, right? The occult is kayfabe. I think that's a beautiful place to end this podcast. Mike, thank you for coming on. And uh, yeah, we'll have to watch pro wrestling again sometime soon. Yeah. And by the way, Daniel loves pro wrestling. (laughs) Uh, Within kayfabe. Thank you for listening to Free Enchantment. You can find the links mentioned in this episode in our show notes on our website, reenchantmentpod.com. And if you like the message of this podcast, please, please, please subscribe and let one other friend know about the show. This is a young podcast, and like most things, it needs love in order to grow. Thank you, and see you next time on Reenchantment. Enchantment.